The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Well, good morning, church. Good morning. Happy fall. Hope you're not sick. Apparently, hopefully you are well if you're here today. There's a lot of people who are getting sick, so definitely if that's you and your family or friends, reach out to them. Uh, I know it's going through our church, so stay healthy. Wash your hands, do what you got to do to do that. Um, My name is Justin Wellam. I'm one of the elders here at Fathom. Typically at Fathom, our lead pastor, Chris, preaches about 40 times a year. So that leaves about once a month for either an elder, a staff member, or a guest preacher to come and give the word today. And I'm really excited to share with you all what God has laid in my heart in this passage. Um, I felt like this series in Ephesians has really left me challenged encouraged, and at times like really thinking about what is being shared and how I can apply it to my daily life. So I hope that today we can continue through Ephesians and learn about this beautiful mystery that God has for us, and that the word today will penetrate into our hearts and minds and allow us to grasp this glorious nature that Jesse kind of read over us today. If you have your Bibles, please open them up to Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. That's on page 977. If you need your phone or tablet, that is also okay. But apparently, uh, if you read it on paper, you're more spiritual. So, um, growing up, I love to read. Who also really enjoys reading right now? Just give a couple hand raises right here. Yep. I still love to read, full disclosure. But now I have two kids, an 18-month-old and a three-month-old. And our 18-month-old thinks that books are new toys that he can rip in front of me, uh, which is really sad. Uh, I'm not sure how to feel about it quite yet. I do listen to a ton of audiobooks, though, and I try to absorb as much content from them as I possibly can, from Christian theology, biographies, fiction, and memoirs. However, there's still a genre of audiobooks and classic books that just grab my attention I cannot put down, and those are mystery novels. I may date myself with the following statements, but my two brothers and I We had all 58 Hardy Boys books in our home. Yes, absolutely. So we, I remember in our hallway, there is all the blue books lined up in order, and we just had them. We could pull them down and read them. And the Hardy Boys books follow the exact same plot, but for some reason, all 58 books were the absolute best books. There was the brothers, there was a mystery, one of them got captured, the other saved the other one, and they rode in cool cars, and it all was resolved in about 150 pages. Beyond Hardy Boy's books, though, I read Agatha Christie's books, which, yes, oh, man, this is, this is great. We're, we're on a good start. So Agatha Christie books, if you've not read them, are intricately detailed, and she puts these clues throughout the entire novel, and then all of a sudden just blows your mind at the end with how it all comes together. I still really struggle with this confession, but I just love a good John Grisham novel. And I know that he's written a million books. I know they're all the same. But while I was prepping this sermon, I was actively taking my boys on walks around our neighborhood, just trying to figure out what was the end of the judges list. So mystery novels really define my childhood. But our larger culture is also obsessed with mystery novels. Apparently, according to some research, they're the second most popular type of novel in America and about 40,000 new mystery novels are produced every year. Does anyone want to guess what the number one type of book in America is, though? Shout it out if you think you know. Romance novels. I know, I know. There probably is a whole other sermon about what it says about our culture and our society that romance novels are number one. But 
why are mystery novels so popular? According to just research and kind of digging and thinking about it, one article that I read said that mystery novels start with an exciting hook, keep readers interested with suspenseful pacing, and end with a satisfying conclusion that answers all the reader's outstanding questions. For me personally, it's the suspenseful pacing. It's the uncertainty of the conclusion that brings me back to them again and again and again. And it's me attempting to put the clues all together and see if I can figure out the mystery before the end of the novel. I'm pretty sure that no theological scholar would argue that the Bible is a mystery novel. But in a sense it is. There's a lot of similar characteristics to it. There's foreshadow. There's rise and fall of characters. There's prophecies interwoven throughout the entire text. Even though Ephesians 3 is not the end of the Bible, we are given the answer to God's glorious mystery in this text. We are told his grand master plan of how he is going to change the world and our society as a whole. Today in our text, we see God's mystery of his divine plan revealed to us and how we get to play a part in it. I hope you're on the edge of your seat, just as I am when I'm reading a mystery novel. So that's why I'm titling today's sermon, Revealed. Let's go ahead and take a look at the passage and let's read together Ephesians 3, 1 to 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though, I am the very least of all the saints this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages, that God who created all things, and that so through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we now have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. As we begin a new chapter in Ephesians, let's quickly recap where we've been in this book. In chapter one, Chris started out this series talking about the call that God has for all of us. We heard about God's divine plan and how he chose us first because he loved us. In chapter two, we have heard about how depraved we were in our sin. Not that we needed a lifeboat, but that we were dead on the bottom of the ocean. And after that, we see that, has, that God has a plan to unite the Jews and the Gentiles into one union with Christ. Paul begins this chapter saying a prayer for the Ephesians. He desires to pray for them and for their sufferings that they are enduring and to give them strength. 
However, Paul doesn't make it long in his prayer before he does what is called a digression. We've seen this happen before in Ephesians 1 and other places, but essentially Paul is starting to prayer and then he goes on a side tangent and he has a couple of reasons for doing this. First, he wants to make really clear what is the mystery of the Gentiles and how they are part of God's master plan. Second, he wants to show us God's purpose of when and whom this new revelation would come. And then third, he wants to show us the content of the mystery that is throughout the Bible. He picks up his prayer in verse 14, and we'll cover that next week. But we're gonna focus today on this digression or this side tangent that Paul goes on. In the Greek, this is one long sentence. So in our English translation, there's periods put in there. But in Paul, imagine him writing this out frantically. He's excited. He's compelled. It's almost as if the spirit is filling him up so that he has to get this out as quickly as possible before he forgets it. Paul tells us the end of the story, kind of spoils it for us. Uh, He tells us the meaning of the mystery, and he reveals to us the greatest truth in human history. He sums up the climax of the gospel in these 13 verses or 189 words, and it'll leave the readers changed and hopefully us as well. Today, we're gonna see three key aspects of how God reveals the gospel to the Gentiles and how he chooses to use us, the church, to advance the gospel around the world. Let's look at the first five verses of the text. Take, look back at your text, verses one through five. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as, is, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. We again see that Paul intended to start this section with an intercessory prayer for the Ephesians due to the suffering that they're currently experiencing. Paul also connects back to what Chris shared last week that the Gentiles are are now able to access the same spiritual benefits that the Jews can offer. However, after verse one, Paul diverges into providing more information about a specific calling to minister to the Gentiles, a calling which would not have been the norm at the time. Just as a reminder who this Paul character is, Paul, who used to be named Saul, was trained as an elite Jewish leader. He trained under the top scholars. He attended the right schools and had every privilege that could be offered a Jewish young man. He took his training and fanaticism to a whole new level with a goal of trying to eradicate any Jewish follower of Jesus. We see in Acts 8, his arrangement of the stoning of Stephen, who was a follower of Jesus, and the constant fear that he put all early Christians due to arranging them to be murdered and killed. Paul in our limited eyes, would have not been a good guy. Yet, we see his conversion in Acts 9 and the complete reversal of Paul. Take a look at the passage on the screen, which is Acts 9, 20 through 22. And immediately he, Paul, proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not here for this purpose 
to bring him bound before the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. One can assume that Paul's reflecting on this in his conversation and his transformation as he's writing these words in verses two and three. And as he describes himself as the steward of God's grace and that the mystery of God was made known to me by revelation. Paul was, was specifically called to leave his life of murder, deception, violence, and hate, and to be the beacon of truth to the Gentiles, a group of people that he was told never to associate with. This leads me to my first point, which that God reveals his purpose to Paul, the Gentiles, and to even us today. As we think about purpose, oftentimes as Christians, we get caught up thinking about what God has called us to do or how we should spend our lives. We often equate work with purpose and we want to ensure that we are fulfilling God's purpose. In my line of work, I work as a school administrator, but specifically I lead our college and career counseling team for my school. And my responsibilities involve meeting with students and families and asking those really annoying questions that you hated when you were a kid. What do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to study? What kind of things do you like? What are you good at? I've noticed that these questions, when framed that way, can send a high school student into a spiral. It sent me into a spiral when I was convinced I didn't know exactly what I needed to do with my life when I was 16 years old. Because obviously, if you don't know exactly what you want to do after high school, then you likely are on a path of total and epic failure, working at Chick-fil-A, and dying alone. <laughs> Which I guess may not be the worst thing in the world. So, However, church, I actually want to encourage you today that God has already revealed his purpose to each and every one of you here today, just like he has revealed it to Paul. It's being shown here in this passage and throughout the Bible. Our central purpose as Christians is stated in the Westminster Catechism, what is the purpose of man? It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Our unifying purpose as believers in Christ is to form a deeper relationship with God every single day. After that, we are called to share the gospel and expand his global kingdom in whatever way that God has uniquely gifted us to do so. Tim Keller in his book, Every Good Endeavor, said, if you make any work the purpose of your life, even if that work is church ministry, you create an idol that rivals God. Your relationship with God is the most important foundation for your life. And indeed, it keeps all the other factors, work, friendships, family, leisure, pleasure, from becoming so important to you that they become addicting and distorted. Church, I ask you today, how are you living out God's purpose in your own life? How are you daily strengthening your relationship with him? How are you living in a way where you feel like God's allowing you to steward his grace and to share that with others? If we see in these first five verses, God revealing to Paul his unique purpose, 
then we will see God's plan shared very openly in the next few verses. Let's take a look at verses six through 10. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though, I am the very least of all the saints. This grace, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Did we pick up on the clues laid out in the text? Did you pick up the glorious conclusion of the gospel? This is a climax we've been building to for the last few chapters in Ephesians and in the whole Bible, which is my second point for today, that God reveals his eternal plan to maximize his glory. If we go back and look specifically how God's plan was promised from the beginning and how it was done to maximize his glory, let's look at verse six. There the Gentiles are promised three things. They're promised to be fellow heirs, fellow members of the same body, and fellow partakers of the same promise. What promise, what heirship are they inheriting, and what membership are they joining? Paul intentionally chose these three adjectives to show us the beginning of time, from the beginning of time, God has planned these things. I'm gonna show you a few different verses on the screen to make the point that God's plan has been um, instituted from the beginning of time and from the beginning of the Bible. I'm essentially displaying the clues that have been written throughout the Bible. Let's first look at Genesis 12, one through three to understand this idea of fellow heirs. On the screen, we see fellow heirs picks up on language from Abraham in the covenant that God made with him. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God promised Abraham and his descendants the blessing. And Paul is now stating that this blessing of being a fellow heir is now included to the Gentiles. We see him making this case clearly again in Romans in two spots. Take a look at the screen on two verses, Romans 4, 16 and Romans 8, 17. In Romans 4, 16, it says, that is why it depends on faith in order the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And in Romans 8, 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified in him. Putting all of this together, putting all of the clues in one spot, we see that the Gentiles are included in the covenant 
that Abraham was part of with God. But that was the old covenant. We now have a new covenant. And this new covenant is more global, more expansive, and brings all of humanity together in union with Christ. We are heirs to this glorious covenant today. This is clearly stamped again when Paul says fellow member and fellow partaker of the promise. And just like Chris mentioned last week, this new, new union where Jews and Gentiles don't just coexist and mingle in society. We are given the same level of membership, ownership, and inheritance in the kingdom of God. It's a new kind of people. It's a new race. It's a new entity. And we're all united under one common banner, and that is Christ. One commentator summed up this section of revealing the mystery with the following statements. The mystery or open secret of Christ is the complete union of Jews and Gentiles with each other through the union of both with Christ. It is this double union with Christ and with each other, which is the substance of this mystery. Again, this would have been revolutionary for the time. The Bible and the early Christians believed that it was only for the Jews and their people and their kind. Now, we today are all brought together in one common union. We're unified under that one banner. Church, we are called and granted the title heir and member with Christ. I ask you today, how are you embracing that title in your own life? Do we live in a way that is honoring God with being his heir, his promise keeper, partaker of that promise? How are we viewing others in the same way, especially those who we may not think worthy of being an heir or partaker of that promise? We see that God's plan was eternally predetermined, but we also see in the text that God's plan was done to maximize his glory. Let's look at verses seven through 10 to see that. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which is given me by the working of his power. To me though, I am the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone. What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In this section, we see that Paul emphasizes again his divine plan of being called to the Gentiles. But we also see that Paul is overwhelmed by the grace that God has given him and bestowed upon him. His act and his ministry is not of his own doing, but it's of the gift of God that allowed him to be a minister of the gospel. I often have wondered in my own selfishness and weakness, why would he pick Paul? He was a murderer. He was vile. He was killing people. He was wicked. Why would he pick another disciple? Maybe Peter, but then Peter had his issues too. Why didn't just Jesus do it all himself? Why did he have to include other people? Maybe he could have like raised Moses or Elijah from the dead. Like why did God choose to use Paul and him in this ministry? To be honest, I don't fully know. I don't think we're actually called to fully know because God's plan 
is done so in a way to maximize his glory and to bring about salvation to his chosen people. Why did he choose that time to bring his ministry to the Gentiles? Scholars have argued different things. Maybe it's because the Roman Empire was expansive and it was easy to transfer that information to the whole world at the time. But why didn't he wait till now when we have social media and other things to happen? God's plan often may defy logic or reason. And we are chosen to be part of that plan. We may not know why. We may not always fully know the reason why. But God has chosen us to do it to maximize his glory. How does Paul respond with being chosen? If you look at the text, he's overwhelmed with intense gratitude and a deep understanding of his sin and how beautiful grace is. In verse eight, he uses the term, the very least of the saints. But in the original Greek, Paul made up a new word and it would translate to our modern English, leaster or less than the East. So for you English people, yes, leaster is not a word, but Paul made up the word. Um, so blame him. Paul knew his past and how God's grace changed his life and gave him a calling to share this gospel. And when he realized it, he felt leaster or less than anyone imaginable. Why did he feel this way? He was overwhelmed with the task that was given to him. And the task was preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ. Let that term sink in a little bit. The unsearchable riches of Christ. That means there is no end, no width, no depth. It's infinite, larger than our known universe, bigger than our fears. This is a privilege that Paul had to share the glory to both Jew and Gentile. And church, we are called to that same purpose to preach the infinite, undefinable riches of Christ. We are being used by God to fulfill his mission and that same purpose in our life. How does that make you feel? For being honest, we might feel humbled. We might feel honored. We might feel terrified. We might feel scared, unworthy. It's complex. And we see Paul navigating his emotions in this text. But we are called to that purpose and that has been revealed to us and God's plan has been revealed to the church. And the encouragement that I wanna like leave with is my final point is that God's power will empower us to carry this mission out through today. Let's look at the final few verses of our text. Verses 11 through 13. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness, and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. As we consider God's power, I want you to think of a thought experiment. If I asked you, what is the most powerful thing in our known world, what would it be? Is it a human? Is it an animal? is an idea or concept. I Googled to figure out the answer, because obviously that's how you figure out the answer. <laughs> and what scientists have determined is the most powerful entity in the known universe is gamma radiation. My former chemistry teacher self geeked out when I saw this answer pop up. <laughs> According to an article I read, 
the most mind-boggling explosion that we could imagine doesn't come close to the explosions that happen in the universe. When stars, 150 times the size of the sun explode, they produce the brightest light source in the universe and release as much energy in a few seconds as our sun could produce over its entire lifetime. That's about the same energy in 10 trillion, trillion, billion, megaton atomic bombs. These explosions generate beams of high energy radiation called gamma ray bursts, which are considered by astronomers to be the most powerful thing in the universe. If we go a different route with that question, maybe power and influence is the way that we think about who is the most powerful thing. Are, power, are politicians the most powerful people in our universe? Or is it superstars like Beyonce and Tom Brady? Or maybe it's Giselle these days. <laughs> Regardless of how we attempt to conceptualize earthly power or power in our universe, they compare nothing to God. They compare nothing to Christ and what he has for us. Both gamma radiation and humanity were made by God, it's sent under his rule. We do not deserve access to God, but through Christ, we are given access and the ability to fulfill his mission. We could not do anything on our own, and it's only because of what Christ has done that we are actually able to approach God with boldness and confidence and to partake in living out God's gospel mission. So again, Paul's feelings in the text, he's overwhelmed, he's unsure, but God's power is the only source to carry out his gospel mission. And how is that possible? It's because Christ gave up his own life for us by dying on the cross and standing in place of, and standing in our place and him absorbing all the sin and bearing it upon himself. He took our sin and paid the price. And this act changed the world more than any gamma radiation burst ever could. This is the most powerful thing that anybody has ever done and will ever do. And this should leave us astonished. It should leave us, like Paul, overwhelmed and feeling leaster than anyone. We have a God who loves us and empowers us to fulfill his plan. Therefore, when things are getting tough and challenging, we have the ability to persist and endure through them. And not because of our own strength, but because of the power that lives in us through the Holy Spirit. Paul encouraged us in verse 13 to not lose heart. And we are called to trust that because Christ has endured far more for us because he loved us, he is now acting us to live out according to our purpose, following God's plan and being empowered by his spirit. The reality, church, is that God is calling us into this mission. And we see in verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God has chosen us, Fathom Church. He's chosen each and every one of you here today. And he's chosen our global church to carry this forward. He is doing so to reveal the big mystery that God's kingdom is for everyone, Jews and Gentiles, and there's no separation. So as we sit in this, I have a few application questions for us to consider today. First, how can you 
in your life fulfill God's purpose of sharing his gospel mission? This may be staying faithful at work, raising children with biblical truth, or inviting others into a relationship with you. Think about how you can actively take on God's purpose this week in your line of work. My second question, what will you do when you doubt God's plan for you? We all will have doubts. It was kind of shared in our missions presentation that, yeah, sometimes we feel those doubts and fears, and we may feel less than the least. How will you remind yourself of the truth that you are loved and chosen by God and empowered for him for things far beyond that you could ever imagine. My final question, how can we truly believe that the riches of Christ are infinite, unfathomable, and endless? And how can we use that to live a life that is full of God's power? Church, we've been told all the clues of the mystery. It's been solved for us. Even better, we are part of the story the entire time. Let's go into this week as Christians who have been told the greatest, most powerful truth that has ever been shared. Let's pray. Dearly Father, I just am so grateful and overwhelmed by the grace that you have given not only me, but given all of us today, how the mystery of God is that you loved us first and you chose us and that there is no, no separation between us. So I pray that we'll respond today in your purpose of how we can fulfill that out with your plan of how you want to carry us forward. And I pray here today that you'll leave us empowered to carry out this mission. But Lord, if there are people here today who do not know you in the way that they're um, saved by you, I pray that you'll convict them now and that you will turn them from their sin and turn them to you, Lord. Help for us to use this time to turn our hearts towards you and to be convicted of how we can live this out in our life this week. In your son's name, amen.